Yesterday, Jace Myers sent me an article about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and on Christians being the salt of the earth. In the article, it said that Christians are often ridiculed, mocked, and even ignored. Not so much because we're being persecuted for our faith as much as we're being trampled underfoot because we have lost our saltiness. The article went on to say that it is really the crux of the matter. We can't fix something else if we ourselves are broken. We can't prevent the spread of corruption if we ourselves are corrupt. We can't function as salt if we ourselves have lost our saltiness. The article then said, ironically, salt still looks the same, whether it is salty or not, which means that we can deceive ourselves by outward appearance. Outwardly, we may look fine, but what is the state of our souls? What is the quality of our lives? What is the health of our marriages and our families? Whom do we resemble more, the world or the Lord? My prayer is that as we unpack our passage this morning, that we will answer some of these questions. Paul transitions the church from telling them what God has done to interceding for them in his powerful prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. A passage, if some of you remember, I preached about a month or so ago to what we must be and do as he moves them from doctrine, the first three chapters of Ephesians, uh, to duty, chapters 4 through 6. He's taught them, he's prayed for them, and now he's exhorting them to a powerful appeal. Paul is charging them to always give equal weight in their lives to doctrine and practice. The danger Paul is warning them against is having mere head knowledge without practical application. Will you open your Bibles and stand with me, please, as I read the passage we will be studying this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 from the ESV. I encourage you as well, if you have a Bible, to use it. We're going to be walking through it verse by verse. At times, I think it's a lost art in our churches. We rely on the screens when we have a copy of the Word of God. And so I encourage you guys, use this, use this often every time you come. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Father God, I pray that as we would examine and study your holy word, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us individually and then to us corporately as the church, Father God. I pray that you would God and direct every word, every thought spoken, Father, and that we, Father, would respond accordingly in obedience to what you have taught us this morning. Father, guide us and guide me as I would preach your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. I've titled the sermon this morning, Walking Worthy of Our Calling in Christ. The first point it's not listed in the, in the uh, bulletin, but it should be up on the screen. The first point is all Christians are called. 
We can see this in verse 1. Paul starts off with, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul knows who he is, and equally he knows who he's not. He's fully aware of his identity and where his identity is found. Paul states that he is a prisoner for the Lord. Let me explain that for a moment. You see, Paul is writing this letter as a prisoner, and he's not focused on telling them to get him out of the prison. He's focused on making sure that he is proclaiming the Word of God, making sure that they stand firm in the faith, making sure that they get it. Why? Because Paul wants to always disciple those whom, the God has, whom God has called and placed in his life. He has a heart for discipling believers, for discipling the church. I can't stress enough the importance that we notice he's not focused on his own circumstances. He's focused on others. Therefore, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which they've been called. Step by step, they are to walk in a direction that corresponds to their call. That call to know the grace of God in Christ, to be the children of God, and to serve Him as the messengers of His gospel. That should transform, he says, every part of their life. It involves the obligation to live in a manner that is in accordance with the name of Him, who's the name they are to serve, pleasing Him in all things. This principle, it should guide our every step. You see, every day, we have choices to make. We wake up, we're in situations with people. Should I listen to this music? Should I go over here with this group of friends and participate with them in this activity? Is this going to be something that's going to reflect walking worthy in the manner of which God has called me? Should I engage in this conversation? That's taken me in a different direction. Throughout the New Testament, we see many ethical imperatives. They're based on theological indicatives, meaning the ethical imperative is the command to obedience, which is always the response of the theological indicative, which is grace. What does this mean in simpler terms? Because God saved me, I express my gratitude in how I live for him in Christ. As a new creation, I live a transformed life. By calling, Paul is referring to that for which they have been chosen. Here it's important for us to remember that the word church means called out ones. The emphasis on, is on what God had done. Because God had called them, changing them from what they were to what they had now become they were to live as Christians in the world. Before our calling, we were like the blind man in John 9. We did not know that we were spiritually bankrupt, emotionally warped, and morally naked. When God called us, opening our eyes to the blessed truths of the gospel, for the first time we understood the nature of God's way and perceived how desirable it is. Paul emphasized this in Ephesians 2.4. In which he wrote, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. 
Why is it so incredibly important that as followers of Christ, as his church, that we grasp our calling in Christ? Because God, God who has awakened us to a new life, also gives us the power to live that life. It's because we are now spiritually alive, where before we were spiritually dead, that we are able to pay careful attention to what Paul is urging, and we can live for God. You know, with a gift comes much responsibility. We must live out the reality of God's love for us, and I like how one scholar worded the importance of theology as he said, theology is the basic training in understanding the gospel so that we know how to live. This past week, I was, as I was re- As I was running after work, I was meditating and praying. You see, I thought I was going to be preaching on Ephesians 4, 7 to 16. As I wanted to preach on Paul's exhortation to the church to exercise their spiritual gifts in the church. You know, we have many committees and ministries in the church that could use more kingdom workers. And I felt that was where the Lord was leading me. But God, God had other plans And during my run, the Holy Spirit convicted me that before I can focus on how God can work through us, that I must preach on God working in us, even more specifically, in me. And as you'll hear in a moment, in major character-forming areas of my life, of your life, of our life, as Christ followers, and his church. Look with me at verse 2. Paul goes on to explain how they are to live out their calling in Christ. Notice his emphasis is on virtues and character, in which he emphasizes four of them, and he lists them in pairs. Point number two is all Christians are called to walk worthy. We see this in verses 2 and 3. Starting off with the first pair, he says, with all humility and gentleness. Humility, in other words, it can be worded as lowliness of mind, defined as the humble recognition of the worth and the value of other people. Christ exemplified humility, which led him to empty himself and become a servant. Paul spoke of this to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I really like how John Stott explains humility where he says, the people we immediately, and I want you to think about this, the people that we immediately that we instinctively like. Think about the people you like to surround yourself with and find it easy to get along with are the people who give us the respect we consider that we deserve. While the people we immediately instinctively dislike are those who often treat us like dirt. He explains his point by saying, in other words, personal vanity is a key factor in all of our relationships. If, however, instead of maneuvering for the respect of others, which is our pride, we give them our respect by recognizing their intrinsic God-given worth, which is our humility, we shall be promoting harmony in God's church. Now, let me give you an illustration to think about what this might actually look like, practically speaking. In his commentary on Ephesians, Watchman Nee of China tells of a brother in South China who had his rice field on a hill. 
During the growing season, he used a hand-worked water wheel to lift water from the irrigation stream that ran by the base of the hill to his field. His neighbor had two fields below his. And one night, he made a hole in the dividing wall, and he drained out all of the Christian's water to fill up his own two fields. That bothers somebody in here? The brother was distressed, but he laboriously pumped water into his own field only to have the act of stealing repeated. Can you imagine the feelings you would have in this moment? This happened three or four times. At last he consulted his Christian brothers and sisters. What shall I do, he asked. I've tried to be patient and not retaliate. Isn't it right for me to confront him? The Christians prayed, and then one of them replied, If we only try to do the right thing, surely we are very poor Christians, he said. We have to do something more than what is right. The Christian farmer was impressed with this advice. So the next day he went out and first pumped water for the two fields below his. And then after that he worked throughout the afternoon to fill his own field. From that day on, the water stayed in his field, and in time, the neighbor, after making inquiries as to what caused him to behave in such a fashion, became a Christian. You see, this is humility. It's refusing to insist on our rights, on my rights, and actually putting our neighbor's interest ahead of our own. You know, some some might consider this an example of weakness. But I believe it's an example of what Paul pairs with humility, which is gentleness and meekness. Gentleness, strength under control. These two qualities were found together in perfect balance in Jesus, who described himself as gentle and lowly in heart. When you meet someone like this, don't you just want to be around them more and more? But on the opposite side of the coin, some Christians present themselves as argumentative, even at times hostile. You ever find yourself, those are people you want to avoid? Even if they're right, they're repulsively right. You see, gentleness, it conveys a sensitivity, a desire not to harm, and a valuing of the other person. Gentleness, it nurtures people. It respects them. It allows them to let their guard down, to be more open with their struggles. It allows them to be real and honest. I believe it allows ministry to take place. You ever think about this for a moment in Sunday school classes when we have the opportunity in smaller groups? Most of the time we want to come in with our our suit looking sharp and shiny, and we want to have all the intellectual head knowledge and give all the right answers because we're so focused on how we sound, how we look to everybody else in the room. Most of the time, that does no ministry at all. What if when we came in there, we threw that off to the side, and we just simply, we were simply real? We admitted that we didn't have it all together. We didn't have all the right answers. We didn't have it all figured out. And we just simply allowed God to work in us so we could work through us. Imagine how we might look different 
as a church. Imagine how more people might open up to the hurts, the burdens, the pains, the struggles, the fears, the worries, the anxieties that most all of us have and share them with one another. Imagine what kind of growth could take place. Imagine a church where we are filled with people who think of themselves less and are gentle towards those who are in need. To those who are hurting, to those who need ministered to, in which the Lord draws to us. Before I look at you, I have to look at me. And I have to ask the Holy Spirit to help me be humbler, to help me be gentler, so I can have eyes to see my weaknesses, my failures, my shortcomings, but then also have eyes to see those around me who are in need. The next virtue and character pair that Paul highlights in verse 2, it's patience and forbearance. With patience, he says, bearing with one another in love. It takes a long time to learn patience. Unfortunately, one of the chief ways we learn it is through suffering. Patience is long-suffering towards aggravating people. Such as God in Christ has shown towards us. Therefore, we ought to suffer long and be patient with one another. I like what Max Anders says about patience as he says, Patience, guess what? Means patience. It doesn't mean that if I'm patient now, maybe the Lord will see that I've learned my lesson and he'll give me what I want sooner. Patience, he says, means waiting for God to act when, where, and however he chooses. You know, I have a confession. I, I struggle with this often. Most of the time, I think that's probably why I hit every red light. How many of you guys want to be in the next chapter of your life, the next stage, the next season? You're ready to keep moving in the next area, and God's saying, just be patient. Enjoy where I have you in the moment. Listen to this quote. Patience is the largest that values other people enough to give them room and time to fail, to learn, and to mature. While patience in daily schedules is important, it's especially necessary in allowing people space to mature at their own rate, rather than to expect them to do everything right and to do it now. Paul pairs patience with forbearance. Forbearing one another. This is the practical outworking of long-suffering. It involves bearing with one another's weaknesses, not ceasing to love one's neighbors or friends because of those faults in them, which perhaps offend or maybe even at times displease us. Did you have a person in your life when you needed them most that was patient and forbearing with you? Is there someone in your life right now in which the Lord is placing on your mind, in your heart, and he's calling you to be patient, to be forbearing with that person? Paul ties these four virtues, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, with love. It's important to be reminded here that we Practice these virtues because God first loved us. 
Therefore, we love others the same. I think about that love of the Apostle Paul. His life completely transformed. Everything that he experienced, everything that he went through, being stoned, left for dead, accusations against him, and yet he still loved. He still poured out his love. He still continued to preach and teach and share the gospel faithfully with humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance and love. You see, love is the crown and the sum of all these virtues. And for love is the basic attitude of seeking the highest good of others. And it will therefore lead all Christians to practice these qualities. Remember back to Ephesians 3.17 where Paul prayed that his readers would be rooted and grounded in love. And now he exhorts them to do their part to go on to possess all of these virtues in love. I'm sure the ladies who work in the office with me think at times I might be a burden or a pain. Maybe my wife feels that way at times. I'm sure none of you guys are ever a burden or a pain to anybody else. You know, at times we're bound to other people in Christ. Because we're bound to other people in Christ, the choice must be made not to let them go. Because we are bound to other people in Christ, the choice must be made not to let them go. Love is a choice, the act of caring enough to give attention to people. You choose to invest in other people. Let me go back to that love is a choice. In our world we live in today, many people think love is a feeling. I fall in and out of love, and so it gives me the right to leave and abandon relationships because I've fallen out of love and I've fallen in love with somebody else. Love is a choice. We all have the opportunity to show love and to invest in other people and show them the love of Christ. Putting up with someone in love is what families and it's what friends should do. That means tolerating activities, that means choices, that means inconveniences or things we don't like. No one knows that better than the parent of a teenager. I have too. Putting up with in love is also what we as a church should do. Sometimes it means going through trying times with another person. But it won't mean writing the other person off altogether. The love experience in Christ must be extended to one another. Paul's focus on one another is significant. Christians are part of each other and to receive one another, think about one another, serve one another, love one another, build one another up. Bear one another's burdens, submit to one another, and encourage one another. Each of the previous four virtues preceding love depends upon getting self out of the center. And that's what the church is dependent upon. That's what makes for peace within the church. Every member must be willing to give up his or her own self-interest for the common good of the whole. As long as my feelings, my prestige, my interest are the things that matter, there can be no peace. But humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing people have mastered the my and they're committed to the hour. Why? 
Because peace within the church flows from its members being at peace with one another because they are bound together by love. As if that isn't enough. Notice Paul, he, he doesn't stop there. He goes on to further clarify how we are to practice walking worthy of our calling in Christ. Look with me at verse 3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. To maintain the church's unity must mean to maintain it visibly. The Greek word for eager is emphatic. It means that we are to spare no effort. And being present, a present participle, it calls for this continuous, ongoing, diligent activity. Marcus Barth expresses the senses vividly in which he describes the meaning as not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant, involving his will, his sentiment, his reason, his physical strength, and his complete, total attitude. The imperative mood of the participle found in the Greek text excludes this passivity. Quietism, I'm just going to wait and see, attitude. Or a diligence tempered by deliberate speed. Well, I'll get to that next week. Well, maybe I'll address that in my life in, in a few weeks from now. Or I'll wait till that person addresses it with me. You see what he's saying here? Yours is the initiative. And he's saying, do it, but do it now. Mean it. Mean it when you do it. But mean it and do it now. Can you feel the overtones in the, what he is getting across to the church? Keep in mind, imagine if church, every one of us individually allowed all of these virtues to work in us. And as the Holy Spirit revealed areas in our life where we're falling short, if we went and confessed to God and to whoever the person might be, imagine the change that can take place in the church. Are we guilty of ignoring this command in our churches today? Why? If so, is it because we lack knowledge? Maybe we lack desire. Maybe we're just content with living a marginal life. Maybe we're complacent, indifferent altogether, or is it maybe because we bought into the consumer culture mindset of the American church? It's all about me. And if I don't like what you're doing, I'll go to the church down the street who tells me that it's all about me. You see, Paul says we should be eager for love, unity, and peace, and more active in seeking it. Imagine if Christians took this command seriously, the change that would take place in our gatherings, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, and in our communities. Let me be clear on this because I want to make sure we're comprehending what Paul is writing. Christians are not instructed to make unity, but to keep the unity already in existence. Unity already exists because it was given by God in Christ Jesus. The community is not the source of its own existence. We, as the church, exist because Christ is the unity of the church, and for the church only exists in Christ. And our responsibility as Christians is to value and maintain the unity that already exists because of Christ. In verses 4 through 6, Paul reminds them what they have in common. And this is point 3. He says, all Christians are called to unity. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope 
that belongs to your call. The church is one body. Believers may meet in many places and speak different languages and live in different cultures, but none of this separates them. They remain Christ, one body. The church obeys one spirit. God's spirit speaks the one truth and guides the church to unity in theology and practice. The church thus lives in light of its one hope. Christ's resurrection has ensured the believer's resurrection to eternal life. The common goal encourages the church to act in unity now. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The central fact of Jesus as the only Lord is the key to Christianity as the church receives salvation and marching orders from one Lord. Christ Jesus died and rose again. He alone has the right to the church's allegiance. All other lords are false gods and promise salvation they can't deliver. Following the Christ, following Christ, the church will never be divided. You see, the church, as the church, we proclaim one faith. The crucified, resurrected Lord is the object of the faith. To confess Jesus as Lord is to express the faith of the church and to unify oneself with all members of that church. Membership in the church comes through one baptism. Each member enters the baptismal waters once to confess the one faith and become a part of the one body. The baptism identifies the person as belonging to Christ and distinguishes the person from all who do not confess Christ. Thus, baptism is a unifying mark of believers. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is one Christian family embracing us all because there is one God. And Father, who is above all and through all and in all. Meaning all Christians, not all people. For the all above, through and in whom God is Father are his family. Those he has called and redeemed. The worship of one and only one God united the church. It's what unites us today. It's why we gather together on Sunday mornings. This calls the church to practical unity. And as Christians, we should live together and witness together. And we must show this unity to the world who desperately needs it. This past year, we started a ministry on Wednesday nights for the children with their parents called D6. One of the things that's been incredibly powerful from it is the ability to have families come together and study the word together and memorize the scriptures together as a family. In honor of that, right before I give the invitation, I want us to do one thing that the Lord pressed on my heart as I was preparing for this. Would you guys stand? Sometimes we're so focused on what divides us, we miss out on what unifies us. I've asked Christy in the back to play a song. Would you sing this song from the depth of your heart? Parents with children who are here, would you sing this with your children? As we memorize the scripture together and we're reminded together, of the unity we have in Christ.
you guys would play this song. press anything on your heart, whether it's to pray at the altar, pray at your seat, kneel at your seat, if it's to walk across the room and just tell somebody you're sorry for something, I, I don't know what it is, but I would encourage you as the Spirit leads, do whatever it is He's asked you to do, and I trust that you'll do that. Um, I'm going to pray, and then you just do as, as the Lord lays on your heart, kneel, sit, pray, whatever, as they sing, maybe a song or, or something for us. You guys... Uh, just respond accordingly. Father God, Lord Jesus, a reminder throughout the entire message is, is practically applying what you've called us to do theologically. Lord Jesus, we practice our faith because we understand who we are in Christ. I pray, Lord Jesus, that whenever your Holy Spirit is pressed upon anyone's heart in this room, that they would act in accordance and obedience with that. Maybe it's kneeling at the altar. Maybe it's walking across the room and, and just telling somebody they're sorry. Maybe it's 
uh, sitting at their chair. Maybe it's uh, telling their spouse that they love them or they're sorry for something maybe that they did. I don't know. Whatever it is, I pray that we'd respond in obedience. And I pray, Father God, that we would use this time to respond accordingly, however you lay on our heart. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.